I mean, it's too presumptuous of me to say this, but I'm somehow strung between Oliver Sacks and Jonathan Sacks. <laughs> oh. I think that Jonathan Sacks, <clears throat> his main contribution has been to take on the world, the ecumenical world, from the Dalai Lama to the Pope, and to put Judaism back on the world stage in terms of a rational response to Islamic fanaticism and all the crises that are affecting modernity. And he did that masterfully because he has a Cambridge education, a classics education, and he's studied <coughs> rabbinics, <coughs> and he's very articulate. That's to the outside world. His tenure as chief rabbi from the inside world has been nothing short of divisive. He has created divisions by not dealing with the Haredi world, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> by delegitimizing the reform and liberal congregations of England, by slamming Hugo Grin, G-R-Y-N, who was a Holocaust survivor, reformed German rabbi who came to England great integrity, served his community. And even Louis Jacobs, who was <clears throat> the founder of the Masorti movement in England right. because he couldn't become chief rabbi because of his heretical views. So by splintering off those, you know, in a kind of arrogant way, um, coming across as more cons religious and conservative than them, and yet at the same time not dealing with the right-wing <clears throat> he left a legacy of divisiveness, which has to do with his personality as well. And, you know, his books are <clears throat> well regurgitated, uh, modern 20th century Jewish philosophy in the style of uh, Herman Cohen and Heschel and with a bit of Bertrand Russell. He loves name-dropping. <clears throat> I don't think there's much original thought at all. But I keep getting compared to him. And <laughs> and um, he came to Chicago last week and there were like 1,300 people showing up to hear him speak. And he's very eloquent. But I, I didn't feel that I had, he had anything to offer me. And um, <clears throat> we grew up in the same neighborhood. Right. He... Um, now, Oliver Sacks, on the other hand, has my greatest respect, even though he's not religious, because of his self-deprecation, not self-bloatedness, and his uh, humility as an observer of human nature. So I'm going to read you this, because it's the last essay he wrote two weeks before he died. He went over it many times, editing and editing so that every word meant something. I find it an amazing confessional, as you will see as we go through the article, <coughs> and at the same time, deeply spiritual, but not in the orthodox sense. Okay, so I'm now going to read it. <clears throat> it came out in August the 14th. On August the 13th, he sent it to the New York Times, and they published it the next day. 
My mother and her 17 brothers and sisters had an orthodox upbringing. All photographs of their father <coughs> show him wearing a yarmulke. And I was told that he woke up if it fell off during the night. My father, too, came from an orthodox background. Both my parents were very conscious of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the Sabbath, <clears throat> or Shabbos as we called it in our Litvak way, was entirely different from the rest of the week. No work was allowed, no driving, no use of the telephone. It was forbidden to switch on a light or a stove. Being physicians, my parents made exceptions. They could not take the phone off the hook or completely avoid driving. They had to be available if necessary to see patients or operate or deliver babies. We lived in a fairly orthodox Jewish community in Cricklewood in northwest London. The butcher, the baker, the grocer, the greengrocer, the fishmonger all closed their shops in good time for the Shabbos and did not open their shutters till Sunday morning. All of them and all of our neighbours, we imagined, we were celebrating Shabbos in much the same fashion as we were. Around midday on Friday, my mother doffed her surgical identity and attire and devoted herself to making gefilte fish and other delicacies for the Shabbos. <clears throat> Just before evening fell, she would light the ritual candles cupping their flames in with her hands and murmuring a prayer. We would all put on clean, fresh Shabbos clothes and gather for the first meal of the Shabbos, the evening meal. My father would lift his silver wine cup and chant the blessings and the Kiddush, and after the meal, he would lead us all in chanting the grace. On Saturday mornings, my three brothers and I trailed our parents to Cricklewood Synagogue on Warm Lane a huge shul built in the 1930s to accommodate part of the exodus of Jews from the east end of London to Cricklewood at that time. The shul was always full during my boyhood and we all had our assigned seats, the men downstairs, the women, my mother, various aunts and cousins upstairs. As a little boy, I sometimes waved to them during the service. Though I could not understand the Hebrew in the prayer book, I loved its sound and especially hearing the old medieval prayers sung, led by our wonderful, wonderfully musical Chazan. All of us met and mingled outside the synagogue after the service, <coughs> and we would usually walk to the house of my auntie Florrie and her three children to say a kiddush, accompanied by sweet red wine and honey cakes, just enough to stimulate our appetites for lunch. After a cold lunch at home, gefilte fish, poached salmon, beetroot jelly, Saturday afternoons, if not interrupted by emergency medical calls for my parents, would be devoted to family visits. Uncles and aunts and cousins would visit us for tea, or we them. We all lived within walking distance of one another. <coughs> the Second World War decimated our Jewish community in Cricklewood and the Jewish community in England as a whole, was to lose thousands of people in the post-war years. Many Jews, including cousins of mine, emigrated to Israel. Others went to Australia, Canada, or the United States. My eldest brother, Marcus, went to Australia in 1950. 
Many of those who stayed assimilated and adopted diluted, attenuated forms of Judaism. Our synagogue, which would have been packed to capacity when I was a child, grew emptier by the year. <clears throat> I chanted my bar mitzvah portion in 1946 to a relatively full synagogue, including several dozen of my relatives, but this for me was the end of formal Jewish practice. I did not embrace the ritual duties of a Jewish adult, praying every day, putting on tefillin before prayer each weekday morning, and I gradually became more indifferent to the beliefs and habits of my parents. Though there was no particular point of rupture until I was 18. It was then that my father, inquiring into my sexual feelings, compelled me to admit that I liked boys. <clears throat> I haven't done anything, I said. It's just a feeling. But don't tell Ma she won't be able to take it. He did tell her. And the next morning she came down with a look of horror on her face and shrieked at me. You are an abomination. I wish you had never been born. She was no doubt thinking of the verse in Leviticus that read of a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman. Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. The matter was never mentioned again, but her harsh words made me hate religion's capacity for bigotry and cruelty. After I qualified as a doctor in 1960, <clears throat> I removed myself abruptly from England and what family and community I had there and went to the new world where I knew nobody. <laughs> When I moved to Los Angeles, I found a sort of community among the weightlifters on Muscle Beach and with my fellow neurology residents at UCLA. But I craved some deeper connection or meaning in my life. And in the absence of this, I think, that drew me into near suicidal addiction to amphetamines in the 60s. Recovery started slowly as I found meaningful work in New York in a chronic care hospital in the Bronx, the Mount Carmel I wrote about in the book Awakenings. I was fascinated by my patients there, cared for them deeply and felt something of a mission to tell their stories. Stories of situations virtually unknown, almost unimaginable to the general public and indeed to many of my colleagues. I had discovered my vocation and this I pursued doggedly single-mindedly, with little encouragement from my colleagues. Almost unconsciously, I became a storyteller at a time when medical narrative was almost extinct. This did not dissuade me, for I felt my roots lay in the great neurological case histories of the 19th century, and I was encouraged here by the great Russian neuropsychologist A.R. Luria. It was a lonely but deeply satisfying almost monkish existence that I was to lead for many years. During the 1990s, I came to know a cousin and contemporary of mine, Robert John Auman, a man of remarkable appearance with his robust athletic build and long white beard that made him, even at 60, look like an ancient sage. 
He is a man of great intellectual power, but also of great human warmth and tenderness and deep religious commitment. Commitment, indeed, is one of his favorite words, although in his work he stands for rationality in economics and human affairs. There is no conflict for him between reason and faith. He insisted I have a mezuzah on my door and brought me one from Israel. I know you don't believe, he said, but you should have one anyhow. I didn't argue. In a remarkable 2004 interview, <clears throat> Robert John Alman spoke of his lifelong work in mathematics and game theory, but also of his family, how he would go skiing and mountaineering with some of his nearly 30 grandchildren and great-grandchildren. A kosher book, cook, carrying saucepans, would accompany them, and the importance of the Sabbath to him. The observance of the Sabbath is extremely beautiful, he said, and is impossible without being religious. It's not even a question of improving society. It is about improving one's own quality of life. In December of 2005, Robert John received a Nobel Prize for his 50 years of fundamental work in economics. He was not an entirely easy guest for the Nobel Committee, for he went to Stockholm with his family, including many of those children and grandchildren. All had to have kosher plates, utensils and food and special formal clothes with no biblically forbidden admixture of wool and linen. That same month, I was found to have cancer in one eye. <clears throat> and while I was in the hospital for treatment the following month, Robert John visited. He was full of entertaining stories about the Nobel Prize and the ceremony in Stockholm, but made a point of saying that had he been compelled to travel to Stockholm on a Saturday, he would have refused the prize. His commitment to the Sabbath, its utter peacefulness and remoteness from other worldly concerns would have trumped even a Nobel. In 1955, as a 22-year-old, I went to Israel for several months to work on a kibbutz. And though I enjoyed it, I decided not to go again. Even though so many of my cousins had moved there, the politics of the Middle East disturbed me, and I suspected I would have been out of place in a deeply religious society. <clears throat> But in the spring of 2014, <clears throat> hearing that my cousin Marjorie, a physician who had been a protege of my mother's and had worked in the field of medicine till age 98, was nearing death, I phoned her in Jerusalem to say farewell. Her voice was unexpectedly strong and resonant with an accent very much like my mother's. I don't intend to die now, she said. I will be having my 100th birthday on June the 18th. Will you come? I said, yes, of course. When I hung up, I realized that in a few seconds, I had reversed a decision of almost 60 years. It was a purely a family visit. I celebrated Marjorie's hundredth with her and her extended family. I saw two other cousins dear to me in my London days, innumerable second and removed cousins, and of course, Robert John Alman. I felt embraced by my family in a way I had not known since childhood. I'd felt a little fearful visiting my Orthodox family with my lover, Billy. My mother's words still echoed in my mind, but Billy too 
was warmly received, how profoundly attitudes have changed even among the Orthodox, was made clear by Robert John when he invited Billy and me to join him and his family at their opening Shabbat meal. The peace of the Shabbat, of a stopped world, a time outside time, was palpable, <clears throat> infused everything, and I found myself drenched with a wistfulness, something akin to nostalgia, wondering what if, what if A and B and C had been different? What sort of a person might I have been? What sort of a life might I have lived? In December 2014, I completed my memoir on the move and gave the manuscript to my publisher, not dreaming that days later I would learn I had metastatic cancer coming from the melanoma I had in my eye nine years earlier. I'm glad I was able to complete my memoir without knowing this and that I had been able for the first time in my life to make a full and frank declaration of my sexuality, facing the world openly with no more guilty secrets locked up inside me. In February, I felt I had to be equally open about my cancer, and facing death, I was in fact in the hospital when my essay on this, my own life, was published in this newspaper. In July, I wrote another piece for the paper, my periodic table, in which the physical cosmos and the elements I loved took on lives of their own. And now, weak, short of breath, my once firm muscles melted away, melted away by cancer, I find my thoughts increasingly, not on the supernatural or spiritual, but on what is meant by living a good and worth, worthwhile life, achieving a sense of peace within oneself, I find my thoughts drifting to the Sabbath, the day of rest, the seventh day of the week, and perhaps the seventh day of one's life as well, when one can feel that one's work is done and one may in good conscience rest. I mean, that last sentence, that is true midrash. He, hadn't, he had only experienced it as a child, and then once with his cousin, Alman, who finally had embraced him. It's like his life had come full circle. It's written so brilliantly, because the article is, <clears throat> is bracketed by his mother's curse and his cousin's acceptance, by the Shabbos and the Shabbos. And what if A and B and C, which means what if I hadn't been born with these tendencies and I had stayed religious and I had come to Israel? What if A and B and C, what, what sort of person might I have been? What sort of a life might I have lived? And then this sense that now at the end of this life, I can come to this sense of my work is done and I can rest and I can write about this openly with no more guilty secrets locked up inside me, which must have been 
enormously difficult for him to have spent years because in those years in the in the fifties had you you could have been you could have lost your license. So he he was in closet until the sixties and seventies. So he was a lonely man leading a monkish existence with his work. Now, having said this, if this would have been written by anyone else, you know, it's cute. But having been written by a man who's written dozens of books about human nature, he finally turns his microscope in on himself. And he produces this final testament two weeks before his death. And for those of us who live lives with these tortured souls, this inner critic, with this sense that you've never done enough, you've never been good enough, you know. And he was raised in the same vein as I, you know, post-war London. He went to the Middlesex Hospital, I went to the London Hospital. He went into neurology, I went into neurology. He went into America, I went to America. He pursued a career in academic medicine. I did not in the end, although I, I was until... I was 35 at Harvard. But both of us share the passion to communicate and teach and, and both believe in the humanity of our patients and I am constantly educating my patients beyond just giving them a prescription. <clears throat> There's a lot in common. And Jonathan Sachs, the theologian, and Oliver Sachs, the neurologist, in some ways are both kind of streaming through me having born in the same place and gone through similar traditional study. You know, it's just weird that the names are the same. <clears throat>